Welcome to Season 2 of the Medal of Honor Podcast. Your host is U.S. Armed Forces veteran Tiffany Martschink. Tiffany retired after 24 years of honorable service in the Army, most of which was on active duty but also served in the Army Reserves. In addition to serving in her military occupational specialty of religious affairs non-commissioned officer, she also served as an Army recruiter and a senior instructor for advanced individual training. In war, destruction is everywhere. It eats everything around you. Sometimes it eats at you. Major Scott Husing, Echo Company Commander President George W. Bush called the sudden increase of ground troops in Iraq, the new way forward. The press called it the surge. Scott Husing and the Marines of Echo Company that he led called it hell. Husing transports readers to the deadly streets of Iraq in this visceral, gripping portrayal of urban combat. Bound together by honor and surrounded by chaos, they battled on the front lines of a war without rules against an elusive, ruthless enemy who wore no uniforms and showed little mercy. Page after page, Husing brings the resilience and bravery of the Marines brilliantly to life and shows how the devastation and terror of combat that left indelible scars on these heroes' bodies, psyches, and souls. Like earlier classics about men at war helmet for my pillow, we were soldiers once and young, and Generation Kill Echo in Ramadi is an unforgettable portrayal of war that will leave readers amazed and, at times, moved by the author's masterful way of capturing the experiences and emotions of combat. Major General James E. Livingston, USMC Retired, Medal of Honor Recipient Major Scott Husing has written a book not just about Marines in combat, but also about life as a Marine in my old command. Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marine Regiment. The narrative comes through clear and concise, and exposes the reader to the collective boredom of warfare, punctuated by moments of sheer terror that these young Marines, soldiers and sailors endured during the Second Battle of Ramadi. As a combat Marine officer and leader of warriors, I endorse this book for many reasons, not the least of which is the honest, paternalistic approach taken by the author as he details the heroism, suffering, and collective brotherhood of those Marines and sailors under his leadership. This is a solid work, written by a warrior who was there in command, which is always the best approach to writing such literary works. What I found most impressive was his clearly demonstrated admiration for his subordinates, those who carried the burden of fighting, some wounded, and others killed in action, while neglecting to mention his own valor. It's also an inspiring chronicle of unwavering courage, remarkable compassion, and steadfast commitment. The respect and devotion Husing has for his Marines is apparent on every page. I, I ordered them to kill because I wanted those young 18, 19 year old men to understand that when it came time for them to put the rifle in their shoulder, to look through the sights, and to make that one life-changing decision for both people, when they put their finger in that trigger and squeeze it and took another human life, that it was my order for them to do that. And I wanted them to do that each and every time they had to make that decision without hesitation.
My name is Major Scott Husing, retired United States Marine. You're listening to the Medal of Honor podcast, and I'm happy to be on as a guest. People ask me why I joined the Marine Corps often, and it's no secret at this stage that, like many young, wayward high school students who are looking for something that they're not getting either at home or don't have a career path. That, that was me. I was a horrible student in high school. And I always challenge any listener or audience to beat my GPA, which was a stellar 1.24. And I barely squeaked out of high school. Um, and I got a phone call from a, a good friend of mine. And he says, you got to come down here and, and meet these guys. I said, what are you talking about? He says, I enlisted in the Marines. So it sounded appealing. And I went down to the recruiting office. Marines are standing in their uniforms with the medals. And the office is painted in camouflage. And you know Marines, they talk a really good game. I mean, they're great salesmen as recruiters. But Marines are not often accused of being shy creatures, especially in large groups. Very humble alone. But um, they started talking. And as a kid that throughout my high school days, my, my first car was a motorcycle, and I used to fight, and I drank underage, and I'd run from the cops. I'd get caught by the cops. And then I had realized I'd been living this life of really high risk, um, even at a very young age. And when I talked to the Marine recruiters, I thought, man, there is no other group of bigger risk takers than the United States Marines. And I thought, this is a perfect fit. And I enlisted. And I went to boot camp in San Diego. I, I knew nothing about the Marine Corps uh, other than what I'd seen on TV and movies. But I did well. I, I excelled in boot camp and fought in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then decided that education is very important. And that's when I decided to hang up my rifle. I went to school at Illinois State. And I was still a machine gunner in the reserves during my college. And I was in college for three years. Did much, much better than I did in high school. And I, I say that because that's a testament to what the Marine Corps and what the military does for young men and women to give them that discipline to look at everything in life as a mission and how it is based off of merit and success of what you do and what you put into it. So I graduated in three years, and a young sergeant called me up and asked me if I wanted to possibly become an officer. And it was just a, again, it was kind of fate that Sergeant Connor called me, and I said yes. I went down, and I got commissioned. And then some 15 years later is where my story picks up in Echo and Ramadi, as I was thrust into the deadliest city in Iraq in, in 2006. So that's why I joined the Marine Corps. Again, not a lot of, I wasn't college material at the time, uh, back in 1988, 89, and I was uh, barely high school material, as I just admitted again. But it was one of the best decisions I'd ever made. And then after college, uh, getting my commission and still having the desire to lead the desire to serve and give back uh, and share some of those hard lessons with, 
with those I, I was fortunate to lead was something I was very privileged to do. And I, I, I don't have any regrets for any of those decisions. It really, it really is a great, it's a great testimonial to what the institution of any service branch brings because we do get less than one half of 1% of the American population to volunteer and serve. But it's such a diverse group of individuals. You've got to, you know, there's an equal balance of what I like to say, smartness and dumbness. And, but the, the, being surrounded in that environment is it, it makes everybody thrive and you learn from each other so much. And, and everything that's going on in the world too, with, with COVID and, the social climate and the political climate. I think it's really important. I, I, I've been sharing this recently is that for listeners that need to know what the military does and how, how we view things is there's no other group of individuals that is comprised of such a vast difference of ethnic culture, religious belief, sexual orientation, Race, all of that is in that small microcosm in any one of these service branches, not just the Marine Corps. Yet we all come together unified to fight and win and succeed. That is a page from our playbook that I wish our vast majority of the public can really understand is we can, they can demigod the military all they want but we are so successful and have been for over 250 years because of the fact that we understand that culture is so important to not just the military but any organization that wants to be successful and i think that that is something we we really enjoy and probably it's something we learn subconsciously throughout our time and it could be four years or 24 years, it doesn't matter. But that's something right. that we kind of pick up and it's intrinsic to our own culture within the military. And I love sharing that with people because they get a better understanding or at least see it through my lens of, of perception of the way things are and, and really gives people a lot of perspective. So, so here's my question for, uh, with that then, because this is something that I find myself like struggling of how to convey that to other people. It is such an interesting thing that with the military being such a diverse, dynamic, just everybody under the sun, yet we're the tightest group that there is as well. But there is a bond that you have in the military that blood doesn't even, how do you go about explaining how dynamic I think that that bond comes from any organization that has some sort of shared adversity. And the military obviously has hardships from entry-level training through the rigorous deployments that they do, the type of work they do. It's it's dangerous work. It's not repairing copiers at IBM. Uh, there's inherent risk in everything we do. So that that type of bond brings us together most certainly. But I also like to share... That type of bond isn't exclusive to the military. There's a lot of organizations that have their own type of challenges and pressures and adversity. It may not be getting shot at or having rockets lobbed at you in combat, but 
I always like to remind everyone that the the military doesn't own those words. We don't have the market cornered on adversity or struggle or sacrifice or service. You can serve and you can lead in any type of atmosphere, any type of, of environment, whether it's in the private sector or whether it's in the military or whether it's in academia. All of those things are inherent to us as humans. One of the things that makes us great is once we understand the culture we're surrounded by. And I think that that's an important thing was we discuss this in academic circles or in real life is that without that understanding of culture, whether it's your own organizational culture that makes you successful, whether it's your own personal beliefs that make you successful, the environment in which you're surrounded, understanding those external cultures, uh, and, it, and I don't necessarily just mean a foreign culture, Tiffany, like the Middle East or in the Pacific Rim or in India. There's so many different aspects of culture in this day and age. I think it's important that we continue to be successful. We understand those. And one of the things I've been discussing with some peers is what about the technological culture? What about this culture of technology that is that permeates every single discussion that we have and understanding that that technological culture, if you're an older person, like in your 50s or 60s or 70s, and you're still in a leadership role without understanding that type of culture, you're, you're probably going to be doomed to, to create some mistakes in your organization because you're not being adaptive, you're not being forward thinking, you're not being progressive enough. And surrounding yourself with people that understand that, I think, is a secret to success. And that success is not just for the, the military fighting winning battles, but as I transitioned from the military and becoming a writer is I didn't have a writing degree in college, but I surrounded myself with smart people. And that was really the secret to my success. And I think that that, again, is another part of our culture in the military that we really enjoy because we are bolstered on every side by really talented people that come from all different walks of life. So that's a long answer to the question, but I think that there's a lot of important talking points with what's going on in, in the world today that people, again, can really take a page out of our playbook and, and learn. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, as you were talking about entering into the military, you said that the um, the story of Echo and Ramadi that's where your career picked up. Um, talk about Echo and Ramadi and what, what that looked like for you. Well, I wouldn't I would necessarily describe it as this where my career picked up. I do admit that being a company commander, leading almost 300 men and women and soldiers in Iraq in 2006 was probably the pinnacle of my career. Um, both enlisted and as an officer, because as someone in the military that that trains every day, I use the analogy like football. If you practiced every day of the week and there was never a game on Sunday, you'd feel pretty useless or underutilized. Why am I getting paid to do this sport? And if there's, you know, I never get to demonstrate my capabilities. 
for our young men and women that that serve, they they train and fight for weeks and months and sometimes years, sometimes their entire career, and never get to play a game. They always are preparing for the game, and for us, Echo Company, Second Battalion, Fourth Marines in Ramadi in 2006, it we were fighting five, six, seven times a day in direct contact with a very well-trained enemy force. And it wasn't a matter of if we were going to get in a firefight. It was just a matter of when and how long. That was just the way it was in 2006 when we fought in, in Ramadi, Iraq, because at the time, on the political and climate there was a there was a lot of debate about increasing troop strengths and we were part of the decision from President George W. Bush to be part of his surge strategy that was orchestrated by he and, and General Petraeus uh to increase troop levels by twenty, thirty thousand and we became a part of that. In Iraq, the fighting had become so intense in Al Anbar province that it turned into what I call this giant game of whack-a-mole, where the U.S. was hammering down on the resistance in cities like Fallujah and Baghdad and Ramadi in 2004, that they would beat them down into submission, they'd run to ground, and then they'd pop back up in another city. Well, the surge strategy allowed the U.S. forces and the coalition to really hammer up in 2006. Ramadi is where they chose to fight, and they fought every day. And we never underestimated the enemy because they were very skilled. Um, they they made a stand. They were aggressive, but at the end of the day, we won. And it's it's hard to say what winning is uh, to this day. I still don't think that we ever had a clear definition of what winning is in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, for me, I always say that the truest metric of success as a commander was bringing as many Marines home alive with me as I possibly could, and I think we did that not in any large part to my leadership or skill, but the leadership of every Marine at every level, these young men who, for the most part, were 18, 19 years old that were thrust into this world of great uncertainty on a daily basis and surrounded by certain danger constantly. And every single day, they took care of each other and me better than anything I'd ever experienced in my life. And the story, Echo Nirmati, isn't necessarily, as you finish the book, you'll understand that it's not really a war story. It's it's nonfiction, but it's really a story about people. It's really a story about leadership and team building and overcoming adversity and this power of human connection that we enjoy, not just in the military, but the families that support us while we fought, families that still support us to this day, and our veteran tribe that still stays so inextricably connected to make sure that we're not just a unit at one place on the map during one time in history, but we're in this thing forever for our lives. And for me, that's really been a remarkable byproduct of, of sharing this story. And it's a story about people. And I think that that's really been a, I guess it's really something gratifying that comes out of, I guess pouring your your 
life into, you know, a couple of years of writing a book. It's not an easy process. And what you share and barf into the cover of 300 pages isn't an easy thing. It's not something everybody has to do. It's a decision that I made, but I've been very grateful at the feedback of everybody that's read it and, and being able to make some impact on someone's life, not just the Marines and the family that are written about in the book, but so many people um, that I've never met, total strangers like you until today. I mean, I think a lot of times you listen to a podcast and like, oh, these people, they've known each other their whole lives and it's friends and family. Right. It's it's through this connection that people are really have more amazing people brought into their lives. So, yeah, absolutely. I have your book right here. But as I was reading, I wrote I wrote some things at, in it where I was reading. Um, and so, let me treat. Let me see. Really. Uh, so in the yeah yeah this is. It, when I when when I read this at here you know, at here it is I guess it's just the first chapter or even the forward I thought you know honestly I thought kind of what you're mentioning I thought I'm getting ready to read a war book and it's just going to be a, a, this this marine this infantry officer marine you know so I I already had a preconceived idea of what this was going to be like and I found from the get go it's not what I thought it was going to be um, yeah. And, and what what hit me that I thought was great um, is uh, you. It, it, so it says, as I fast as I fasten my body armor back together, I scanned the area to make sure no one had been watching or eavesdropping on my conversation during my brief moment of weakness. I always wanted to be emotionally steady in front of my marines, and you know that like so. I mean, I I, I relate to that. Like a hundred percent, you know, when you're, when you're a leader in the military, um, there's this thing of, ha of having this, you know, I can't let my people down. I have to be strong to them. And the question that I wrote, wrote down, I, I mean, I, partially a rhetorical question, um, but it was kind of like a, you know, like why? Like why do we do that? Why? And, and I know why we do it. Um, but I, I put, I put, I wrote, I, I wrote, is it possible to be emotionally, uh, strong and simultaneously be vulnerable or raw? And, and, you know, to, to let people know that I lead or lead me. Yeah, I'm good for now, but I'm not because I just had to do this. I just had to make this phone call. How do you go about doing? doing that or is it possible to do that it's a good question um and for the listeners tiffany's referring to the phone call i had to make to the mother of the first marine that we lost um in ramadi corporal dustin libby who was killed on december 6th and that was a tough phone call um and again it goes back to culture i think it's it's steeped in everything we do and as marines as professionals in the military at any level there's a culture of strength uh, that's expected and nobody nobody responds well to weak leadership they want strength they want i think certainty um 
And I think control of your emotions is an important aspect of that. And the way people think they want to be viewed, a lot of people have called it this mask of command. Like you, you put this mask of command on, and you're expected to be seen um, as this certain type of person and no one should see behind the mask because that's what people want to be um, led by. But there's something you learn, not just through war and, you know, a couple of decades in the military, it just comes from experience and age and you gain some wisdom along the way. And that's something else that I've learned is there's a lot of words that are taught to young Marines as they grow up, leadership traits and principles and justice and judgment, decisiveness. But along the way, I, I wish I would have learned others taught in the professional schools warriors attend. And those are words like in compassion, understanding uh, being a good leader in any situation that I think I was was lucky to learn early enough uh, that enabled us to be successful and, and fight and win in Iraq. Um, but I, I carried those with me throughout my life, um, even long after I left the military in uh, 2013. And I, I love sharing that with especially young military professionals young leaders uh, at the company level or even even higher level commands sometimes because I think that those things are really important and when you wear that mask of command you are in a unique position to really balance that to to not not display weakness but to be understanding and compassionate understanding of what that young marine or soldier is going through because again another great football analogy is the majority of the Marines that fought under my command in Ramadi in 2006, to those listening for the first time and not knowing the story, the year before, they were probably on the high school football team, and you know, doing doing dumb things as a as a kid in high school, and then a year, fast forward a year later, they're thrust into this hellish situation where they have to make life and death decisions and take another human life based on the orders of someone that they've known for less than a year. And that's a really tough situation to put anybody in. But again, these, these young men and women through their training and, and what the, what the military organization does and what the Marine Corps does is it prepares them. It absolutely prepares them to deal with these things. And we're very fortunate as a country to have these organizations that are willing to serve and defend and protect the liberties of, of this amazing country because it's, it's non-existent around the world. And I think that's some great perspective that I've gained as well. I've visited 60, 70 different countries. So it's a, that was a great, that's a great question. I think you can be strong and, and still be, you know, still, I think we're all emotional creatures to some degree, but when you're under those type of, situations, life and death situations, situations of survival, that the, if you pour too much emotion into any decision-making process, that's the losing recipe because mm -hmm. it has to be based off of training 
and logic. And that just doesn't apply on the battlefield, but in business and in life. Because once emotion is thrown in there, you lose a lot of rationality, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I you know what I really love I really love your analogy there with um with the, the football because with I mean and I'm sitting here imagining it I'm a you know, I'm a senior in high school I'm on this football team so I'm part of a team I'm part of this tight knit group and then a year later I'm a part of another tight knit group on this team but with a whole different mission. The, the the mission a year ago was how many touchdowns can we can we score. Mm -hmm. The mission now is not how many touchdowns can we score, but rather, you know, defending a nation and and living and supporting and going for a cause that is not a game. So I I love that analogy. I you know it is definitely a perspective. I can't imagine what would go through that that eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old head of I'm on a team, but this is not the same kind of team that I knew just a year ago. Um, it is a bit interesting there. Um, yeah, for sure. So, with, also with the book, you know, and we were talking a little bit before, um, the difficult question that I find myself asking and, and is that, is that thing that you, you have to grapple with, with being with being an emotional person and with having to deal with, um, it, with, with taking a life, um, that's, you know, I, I've heard, I've heard extreme answers for, or, or not, I don't want to say extreme answers. I've heard a variety of answers. Um, you know, and, and when it comes to grappling with having to pull a trigger and take a life, um, it's such a difficult thing to do. And, and you mentioned in the, in the book uh, to, uh, a point to the effect that we have this mindset of, I'm going to join the military, I'm going to do infantry, I'm going to do this, because we have this impression of what it's like to be in the military and this glorified killer until we actually have to do it and realize that a, a person's life is lost because of we, us doing what we're doing. Um, and it's difficult. You're having to grapple with the fact that a life is now lost because I've, I've, because of what my index finger did. I pulled the trigger. But what, what we find ourselves doing is, um, to, to support ourselves or, uh, what do you call it? Like just to, to justify it is I am defending my nation. I am defending my country. And this is how I, this is how I'm doing it. This is how I have to do it. I have to do this because it's either them or me. It's either them or my country uh, or my team. How, how did you ever, how did you find yourself having to, or what brings us solace is saying, I'm defending my country. I am supporting my sisters and brothers. I'm supporting myself. Um, and if somebody's going to die, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be my team member. It's going to be the enemy. Well, 
I would, I don't know if there's ever solace that comes to anyone because I also wrote in the book about it a time before we would cross the line of departure into the city. And I, I sat all the Marines down and I stood in front of them and I ordered them to kill. I, I ordered them to kill because I wanted those young 18, 19 year old men to understand that when it came time for them to put the rifle in their shoulder, to look through the sights and to make that one life changing decision for both people, when they put their finger in that trigger and squeeze it and took another human life, that it was my order for them to do that. And I wanted them to do that each and every time they had to make that decision without hesitation, because it wasn't about defending our country or our constitution. It was about survival. And it was about taking care of one another on the battlefield and, and trying to make it home. It, it didn't have anything to do with any of the romantic, glorified bullshit that, that is broadcast on mainstream media on how wars are fought. In those intense circumstances, in any war, in any battle, it's a survival methodology. That's all you're applying, is you have to survive to live another day to live another hour in those intense situations when bullets are flying. And to do that, it, it takes training. It, again, we do a, a very exacting training process to not dehumanize the enemy, but to make it possible for humans to survive on the battlefield. So we win and are able to come home and defend this country. At the same time, Taking another human life is a very unnatural act. It shouldn't come easy to anyone at, at any age or any level of experience on the battlefield. Each time doesn't make it easier. You don't get accustomed to that. If, if you do, you're, you're probably a, a sociopath. And that's not what the military is, is comprised of. They, they do it with purpose. And when I ordered all of those men to kill, I wanted to be able to do it and to be able to leave that miserable place with a happy heart and understand that it was my order, not their decision. They had no choice in the matter because Marines do a lot of things great, Tiffany. They absolutely shoot the rifles straighter than anybody and they look sharp in uniform and they're, they're fearless and they attack enemy, but they also follow workers. And that's what I was relying on when I stood in front of them before we went into Ramadi. And they never let me down. And to this day, I think that not having a clear understanding of what winning is and when Al-Qaeda went back into Ramadi and, and seized Ramadi in 2015, in May of 15, I get asked that question a lot on interviews. Is you know, oh, do, do you think it was all for nothing? I said, no, we don't, none of us sit around and cry in our beer about woe is me we lost all these guys we spilled all this blood we 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 sweated this much and it was all for naught we, we don't do that because we don't have control over those things now and we don't have control over those things at the moment because those are decisions so far above the tactical level they're not they're not of even concern to us because we're in survival mode 
All we have to do is fight and win. But the problem now is we look back on this war for 15 years. That's the question I am trying to answer. What is winning in Iraq? Afghanistan? H.R. McMaster said it best. He's like, look, it's never going to be Sweden. There's nothing we'll ever get out of Afghanistan. But Iraq is, is a different story, and we've never been able to clearly articulate that as a, a country, as we continue to send men and women over to the Middle East. 15 years later, we're still doing it. So I asked that question so the, the public, not just our elected officials, understand that before we make these decisions again to commit such precious resources, money, time, and the best young men and women that our country has and send them over there, I think it's important to really define what winning will be, to have an outcome. And and I don't say that as some sort of anti for propaganda. I'm not anti-war. I'm not pro-war. I don't see the war. There's nothing romantic about it that you see in TV or movies. It's just not. But it's a necessary tool when all political means have failed. But I think we really have to ask those questions before we get into those situations again. Or we're doomed to make the same mistakes. And that's not what defines us as a country. Awesome. Yeah. So you 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 said something that makes me want to ask a a, a similar question. Um, whether it's about this specific topic or or something different about you know you, you talked about how about did we win the war did we not win the war, um, but not not so much of a win or lose thing but whether it's this situation or anything else how do you define success. Like, how do you know that something was a, a success or not a success? Well, let's just talk about Iraq specifically. And again, there's different metrics of success at different levels. Uh, I think for this question, we're, we're talking about as as a country. Uh, what was our goal in Iraq? Was to get rid of Saddam Hussein and allow democracy to flourish. The problem is, for any great democracy to be established, the thing that supports democracy is the free market and enterprise and the amazing economic power that we have and enjoy as a democracy. And I'm not just talking about American democracy, because there's no such thing as American democracy. There's no such thing as French democracy. It's democracy. There's a, people have misunderstood that we're not trying to infuse American democracy on Iraq. The problem is they don't want our culture forced on Iraq. I think that they were very keen to democracy, but they wanted to establish it on their own. And they've got a very, very rich... 5,000-year culture in the Middle East, in the cradle of civilization, in Babylon. And it's with a lot of American hubris that we think that we are going to, because we ousted Saddam Hussein or any 
any bad actor in any country that we can force our measly 250 year existence and culture on a population that's been around for 5,000 years. That's just blind hubris. The problem is we, we didn't achieve success or we didn't win or we didn't have a definition of winning because we never defined those terms in the region. And we also never followed up with showing them what right looks like about how to do things, how to develop the infrastructure, how to develop the commerce, how to develop all of those things that make a democracy great. Instead of building wells and digging wells and building water plants and giving people water, why weren't we empowering people to dig the well themselves and then make them sell the water to other Iraqs? How commerce works, how free market enterprise works. That was a huge problem because the American industrial might, the powers, and I'm not sniping, but Walmart or Home Depot or any of these giants of industry, Amazon, none of those companies are willing to invest in Iraq because they take such a huge loss for a, a, a great amount of time before that would And they will understand that, wow, this is a which being built. We've got running water. All of these things that we enjoy as Americans, all of these things that these giants of industry enjoy is only because of our U.S. military protecting our Constitution and what we believe in so they can operate around the world in this safe little bubble that we've created for them. And they're not willing to continue to fight. And, and that's a real problem as we move forward and wage wars is we're not bringing the right people with us to these theaters to succeed and win. So if that's a lofty goal, uh, we're going to invade country X and establish democracy. That's a very esoteric statement for any president or any administrator to make. Uh, and I think that in this at this day, we have never defined what success is in the Middle East, in Iraq. We, we most certainly never defined what winning is. Um, and I already gave you my answer for what my metric of success and what winning was. Uh, you know, if it was killing bad guys, and that was our metric. Kill a lot of bad guys. They need to be killing. Um, continuing to repeat these same mistakes and wage wars that last an entire generation. What's more important too is, you know, I, I, we've talked in this episode about culture and, and killing and, and training and politics. All of these things are great for us as professional warriors, but we've also now forgotten about the culture we affected in Iraq. Because despite killing all these bad guys, we were doing it in a city of 300,000 people in Ramadi that were moms and dads and kids that have grown up their entire lives surrounded by war. An entire generation that has seen nothing but war in Iraq. How are they affected? What responsibility do we have ethically as the number one super? 
superpower in the world on what this wake of disaster we left behind. We didn't create those infrastructure mechanisms like we did in Japan or in Europe after World War II. We just haven't done that. And there's an entire generation that is now suffering in the wake of this war, this bloody war that we've left behind and just dumped it right in their front yard. And they're the ones left to deal with this. Because those you know, those people that helped us fight, these, these brave Iraqi interpreters, all of the people that supported us in Iraq that didn't want terrorists and insurgents in their cities, they're people. And a lot of them are often called collateral damage. They're not collateral damage. They're people. These are moms and dads that wanted to see their kids grow up and drive a car for the first time and go to the soccer game. They're people. And when you lose that perspective of, of the impact you make, not just on the people that have to do the killing, but the people that are left behind, that makes have to this day that, that capability. The problem is, what is the commitment? And when will we get there and see that type of commitment to try and repair some of those things we've done and really mend and continue to cultivate those relationships that we think we've earned in that region. So it's, it's a tough, it's a tough question. Um, and one we could talk about for a long time, but, um, just some important stuff. I think that always needs to be said. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's kind of what my thing is with this podcast is, is talking about those conversations and dispelling, dispelling all those myths that people have when they see or hear or meet somebody who is or once served in uniform is there's this, there's this like cookie cutter perception that people have of who you are and what you're about. Um, uh, you're just a, you're just a killer. And, Oh, and I love what you, how you just called it. They're not collateral damage. They're people. We, for some reason, we forget this human aspect of those who are in uniform and those on the other side of the world who are impacted by our actions and inactions. And I don't know why, I don't know why we are so quick to or how, why it's so easy for us to dismiss, dismiss these things. I don't know. I, you're getting me all worked up now, I guess. Because <laughs> I'm just, my mind is going there with, with funny things you're saying. It's just, it's, I say worked up. That's not, not getting me worked up. But it's just, it's frustrating that we can so quickly and easily call a group of people collateral damage because they were born into the wrong place at the wrong time. I agree. But what do I know? <laughs> So here, here would be um, a question for you that uh, to the person who might be listening to this episode, who is um, has come home from war, or they have exited the military after however much time of service, and maybe grappling with mental health issues due to any kind of experience that they had while in uniform, what do you tell that person? 
stay connected. It's, it's a really easy formula because that's the most important thing that we enjoy on active duty is that sense of camaraderie, connection, and being supported. Uh, uh, if you're a veteran and you're, you're struggling with your own traumas, what, however they came into your life, whether it was in combat or car crash, I don't care. Everybody struggles. Everybody's got trauma in their life. We don't own those words either. You got to stay connected. The minute you withdraw, the minute you become isolated and desperate, those are the things that lead people to those jump-off points in life where they make horrible decisions to take their own life and, and kill themselves. And that's one of the things that I've been very fortunate to do as well. Um, every Everything I do is geared towards helping other people through SaveTheBrave.org which is a veteran nonprofit that helps combat veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress connect through outreach programs. Um, and we're, 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 we started in California and we're, we're reaching out to Texas and Colorado and Illinois and we continue to grow. We've been doing it for six years now. And um, I think what we're doing is pretty special because our metric of success for those who want help is to, create opportunities for them and empower them and bring them into a network that helps them connect. That's what they got to do. It's, it's really simple math and we don't need a lot of algorithms and formulas to figure out how we're successful at that. It only takes me one email from a veteran of any branch of service to say, Hey, thank you for taking me on that offshore fishing trip. We're coming to this event or hosting this tournament because it allowed me to reset hit the reset button in my life. I got back with my girlfriend. I got a job. And that's sometimes all it takes to make that small impact, to create that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to pull them away from the doldrum or the dreariness of what they think they're experiencing and really show them, like, there's a lot you can do. And we're happy to do this for you. Now it's your turn. And give them that sense of purpose, empower them, and send them out on their own mission, whether it's to help us bring other veterans into the fold at SaveTheBrave.org or whatever it is they want to be passionate about. That's the most important thing. You can you can throw them a rope, Tiffany, and try and pull them on board. There's been people that have come into my life where I've thrown the rope. They won't grab it. I've jumped off the side of the ship metaphorically speaking, and, and try to pull them on myself. But there's just some people, you know, that are just destined to sink and, and, and drown. And, and most people always think that they should be doing more and want to do more. But if you're helping one person, sometimes that's enough. And uh, you, 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 can't, you can't expect to go through your whole life and try and save everybody. But there's a lot of great organizations out there. Um, obviously, as the executive director of SaveBrave.org, which was founded by one of my young machine gunners in Ramadi, Nick Velez, who owns Bastard's Canteen in, in Downey and Temecula, California, he started it. And it, it was founded because uh, we lost one of our squad leaders and we decided we got to do something. And over the past six years, we've helped thousands of veterans and Gold Star family members and deserving members of those that have committed suicide with families. Um, it's what we do. And you have to stay connected. And if people want to find out more about this great organization, go to SaveTheBrave.org, volunteer, donate, 
and make a difference. That's that's how you can help. And a lot of people always wonder um, how how to help and where the money goes and what we do. Go to SaveTheBrave.org and find out. It's all right there. And I, it's something I'm very proud of. We continue to have amazing partnerships and and do what we do. And a portion of the proceeds of every sale of Echo and Ramadi go to Save the Brave. It's on the cover. It was non-negotiable with my publisher that this is this is what I do. You know, if I had to leave you with something, I think it's writing the book and, and sharing that story was important. But for me, Tiffany, at the beginning and the end of every day, if you're not helping other people, you're not helping yourself. And I think that that's what sustains me. Um, you don't have to run a nonprofit to do it. You don't have to wear a uniform to do it. You don't have to serve 24 years in the Marine Corps to do it. You don't have to write a book to do it. Everybody has that capacity. And the, the last thing I'll say, and uh, we'll save some more for the next time on the show is, you know, I could teach Marines a lot of things throughout my career. I could teach them how to shoot straighter, run faster, attack harder. I could never teach people one thing, though. I could never teach people how to care. And if you don't care, it's all worthless, in my opinion. You have to wake up every day and be passionate and lead yourself and drive to be successful on the battlefield or in life. But you have to care about what you do. Without that, you're going to continue to struggle. But I just wanted to um, share that with you. And I want to say thanks for having me on the show I, I want to do, 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 um, definitely share some of the people that people want to find me you can follow me on Instagram Facebook at Echo and Ramadi uh, you can find out more about me at EchoRamadi.com or you can go to ScottHusing.com it's my public speaking website and I love sharing my story with organizations I just want to say thank you for your service Tiffany and to all the listeners that served as we're recording this episode during Military Appreciation Month, and it's great. Yes, so I just want to say thank you, and it's number five. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you, and have a nice day.